0: Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, back with Professor Akil Lamar. Hello, Akil. Hello, Andy. And Andy was giggling
1: because I was uh, telling a joke just as he started to do his intro.
0: Right. I decided to leave it in. Why not start with a laugh? Um, it's a, and for our audience's benefit, it harkens back to a, a show that we both uh, love, in which Akil was the uh, legal consultant to, the West Wing, uh, where... Uh, President Bartlett has to record his Saturday morning address, and takes him till Sunday morning practically because he has so many takes. And he, he refers to himself as one take Bartlett, and uh, that's a running joke that we have on the podcast. Which actually Between is us, done, done yes, yeah, which we've actually, now it, shared with you. Yeah, it is actually done in one take. It's just that we uh, then have the editing pen that's applied. So and uh, thank you
1: for that, Andy.
0: <laughs> yes. So here we are. Um, Our audience
1: definitely thanks you for editing editing me down.
0: uh, Yeah, I think that's true. There are a few few ums that get taken out that would probably irritate our audience. So last week, we actually this week, we had a special episode because the term ended at the Supreme Court with a bang, an earthquake, whatever you want to call it, and a number of very important decisions, which, no surprise, because we knew they were coming, and uh, they had to come eventually, so they came at the end, which also was... There's no surprise. And we didn't want to keep you waiting, so we started taking up the, uh, the decisions. And we did so through the lens of what we've been saying all year. Which, because as I said, we knew the cases were coming. We analyzed them as they went along. We made certain comments, predictions, commented on the oral argument, and so forth. And then we went back and reviewed them. And in, in doing so, some things came to light. Now, if we accept that approach as valid, it might make sense to look back at our looking back, and as we look back at the episode that we just recorded, this special episode, we see that something that came up a lot was a theme that was also in your uh, recent Time Magazine piece, Akeel. The fact that originalism is uh, is ruling the day to some degree—that the the Republican majority, or whatever you you know, the more conservative justices, however you want to refer to them. Um, We're adopting a form of originalism in their analysis, some more than others, and perhaps Clarence Thomas more than than any of them. But anyway, the majority opinions use this form of analysis in many cases. Um, And I think it's important that our audience understand what we mean by originalism. So why is it important? Well, I think for one reason, it's important because... Like many things, you can have a very superficial understanding of originalism, uh, which is to say that, oh, originalism means that the only thing that matters is the text of the Constitution, and that is the end of the analysis. So what might be called textualism as uh, synonymous with originalism. And that leads to all sorts of somewhat obvious criticisms. Oh, we're stuck in the 1790s. Or we're stuck whenever an amendment took place. How can this be? The Constitution was designed uh, for the future. Uh, Even John Marshall said that um, in McCulloch. And so this is an untenable way of analyzing, uh, of doing constitutional law. So I think that by looking at what you mean by originalism, I think we can respond to that critique, because I think that neither of us feel that that critique really is valid. when you look at it more holistically. But also I think that it then becomes useful having defined it to then look at the uh, opinion, and in particular the dissent in Dobbs, which we said we were going to look at in greater depth, and see to what degree the, opi- the opinion does good originalism, does bad originalism, originalism, doesn't do it at all. And if it doesn't do it at all, does it suffer for that? Is it still a, an argument worth making and that has great value? So these are some of the questions we're going to be asking. Um, So, Akhil, why don't you start off by telling me a little bit about, telling our audience a little bit about what you mean by an originalist approach to constitutional law, constitutional interpretation.
1: Yeah, and thanks, Andy, especially for reminding the audience that we're going to give much more attention to the dissenters in Dobbs. We weren't able to do everything in the last episode. We didn't actually talk as much about the majority opinion as we could have, although, in earlier episodes, we parsed the leaked draft with some care, and the final version was pretty similar in certain respects, to, in many respects, to the leaked draft. So we're going to talk about originalism, but we're going to also talk a lot more about the, the three main dissenters in Dobbs, Justices Breyer and Sotomayor and Kagan but we're going to do so talking about originalism in part because that's the unifying theme of the term and, and the current court and the court for the foreseeable future. This is a jurisprudential earthquake. What has happened isn't just that the rules of abortion are now profoundly different, it's that the rules of constitutional interpretation going forward are profoundly different. Not just because of Dobbs, but also because of the Bruin case, which is about guns. And we'll talk about that in in more detail in a future episode. And uh, about the Carson case, which is about religious vouchers in Maine. As I mentioned in the Time Magazine piece, Andy, that we uploaded for our special episode, these three opinions come from the three most senior justices on the Republican side. The chief justice writes Carson, which is about religion, religious vouchers. Justice Thomas, the senior associate justice, and also uh, on the conservative side, writes the Bruin case about guns. It's the biggest case of his career thus far, writing a big majority opinion in an area of law that doesn't have a lot of precedents cluttering the field, only really Heller and McDonald as as the big ones uh, prior to Bruin. And... Dobbs, of course, with the third most senior conservative justice, Alito. So the three most senior conservative justices on three big hot button issues, joined by the three Trump appointees, Federalist Society, junior cadre among the conservatives, Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, and it's the same six in all of these three opinions, except for Dobbs, where um, Roberts, say peels away and and writes for himself. And the unifying theme of all of these three opinions is originalism in different flavors. Um, And in particular, the originalism idea, one of the big ideas, is that if a precedent is egregiously wrong, we deviate from the precedent. We toss it overboard, we go way beyond it, we we overrule it. Originalism allows for that. And so what is originalism? It's a theory of the Constitution that focuses first and foremost not on the precedents and what the court has said, but on the text of the Constitution what it uh, was understood to mean by those who originally adopted it, hence originalism, or who originally amended it. If we're talking about a constitutional amendment, originalism would sensibly focus on the 1860s um, rather than the 1790s. If we're talking about the 19th Amendment, which no one talked about in Dobbs, but oh, I wish they had. We need to talk about the the vision of the enactors of the uh, 19th Amendment, all about women's equality, you see. But originalism starts with the text of the Constitution pays particular attention to, gives particular weight to, is enacting context to what the people who framed and especially ratified it thought they were doing and didn't think they were doing. It, of course, pays attention to the structure of the Constitution as a whole because the people adopted the Constitution initially as a whole. And since you mentioned John Marshall, I can't um, resist saying that his famous sentence in McCulloch versus Maryland, we must never forget his constitutional expounding, was not actually an argument for evolution. He doesn't believe in the living constitution. He doesn't believe in evolution. Charles Darwin hasn't written The Origin of, of Species yet in 1819. I don't even know if The Voyage of the Beagle has yet uh, occurred. John Marshall thinks the animals entered the ark two by two. He's not an evolution guy. What he is is the holist he says, in effect when we must never forget it's a constitution we are expounding, a document as a whole, not a word, not a clause, not a sentence, but the whole thing. And and some originalists who in my view are, are not the best originalists sometimes forget that. You have to understand the thing holistically. But my short answer, Andy, in a nutshell, I know Ardius thinks I never give a short answer, is originalism focuses especially on the text history and structure of the Constitution itself as distinct from just what makes practical policy sense today if, you, if you're a kind of a policy wonk balancer in the Breyer pragmatic tradition? Or as opposed to what the precedents say if you're a principled precedent person as Justice Elena Kagan envisions herself. So it's, it's as distinct from the, um, the pragmatists and as distinct from the presidentialists. One final point. We are focusing on Dobbs. But I already have mentioned Bruin and Carson and, and we'll talk more about those cases in the episodes to come. We also have to think about what originalism is not. Because sometimes it's easier to see what something is by seeing, you know, what's its opposite, Roe versus Wade, for reasons I'm going to explain in just a minute. You know, it doesn't remotely look like originalism, and it was overruled, okay, but it wasn't the only case that was overruled. The planned parenthood casey decision from 1992 was also expressly overruled and why do i mention that because on the rules of abortion um it's it's just roe light it's a, it's a junior varsity roe versus wade but casey also talked a lot about precedent and tried to actually vault precedent above text history and structure and i resisted that. I've always resisted that. I wrote emphatically against um, some of the things that Casey said back in 2012. Our audience knows that I was emphatically opposed to some of the things that Casey said about precedent in our earliest episodes, um, even before the Dobbs oral argument, the, the primer on precedent that we offered. And now that Casey has been overruled, as well as Roe, You see, the court is repudiating a certain vision that the precedents trump the text history and structure. They're saying, actually, no, they don't. Where a case is egregiously wrong, a precedent as a matter of text history and structure, originalist privilege, text history and structure, over the precedent. And so we're not just overruling Roe, which doesn't even talk about the Constitution's text, you know, um, in any detail. We're also overruling Casey, which follows Roe um, on abortion law, but also says a whole bunch of things, in effect, about constitutional method that we, the Dobbs Court, don't agree with. We, the Dobbs Court, don't follow Casey in privileging precedent over text history and structure. We, as originalists, privilege text history and structure over precedent, at least if we believe that the precedent is egregiously wrong. So when you say text history,
0: history and structure... So text is reasonably self-explanatory as a term. Um, so we have the text of the Constitution and the text of the amendments. Um, structure, I assume you're referring to the structure of the, of the various articles and amendments of the Constitution. So it's still in a, in a, it's still text in a way. Um, it's That's text one in the version context. of structure, like... Article 1,
1: Article 2, Article 3, separation of powers, um, federalism, you can say it's implicit in the document architecture as a whole other folks talk more about the institutions created by the text and and, and, uh, and um, so they also would talk about federalism or checks and balances or separation of powers but a certain kind of textual version of a structuralist insight would be three separate articles for three separate branches article one, two and three let's look at the architecture of the text itself. Other kinds of structural arguments move a little bit away from that, but still focus on the institutions that are carefully created and defined and bounded by the Constitution itself, like the presidency, the Senate, the House, the judiciary, and so on. So structure of institutions, structure of the text itself, there's a little bit of a fuzziness there sometimes.
0: And then in terms of history, um, uh, do you mean the history that... That, lied be, that lay behind the adoption of the Articles uh, and the amendments? Or do you mean yes. history since the adoption of the Constitution. No, and
1: and we especially focus on enactment history, Mm -hmm. on the context of the adoption of the text, because everything that's ever happened is history, and we might want to distinguish, you know, traditionalism, which focuses on American history more generally, or a precedent-based approach, which focuses on a certain kind of history, the history of the Supreme Court over time. No, um, originalists don't just, they sometimes, you know, are fellow travelers with traditionalists, and you can mix and match sometimes, as Dobbs does. Dobbs talks about uh, tradition and even modern consensus, but pure originalism is the the enactment history of the Constitution and its amendments. You focus on the history closely adjacent to the adoption of a particular patch of text.
0: Okay, so, so all of these things, the text, history, and structure of the Constitution then, they kind of terminate at the moment of ratification of the of the Constitution or of the amendment. Um, and yet, you've written a book called America's Unwritten Constitution, which would seem to go beyond this, in so, at least in some ways. And, uh, and we've been, had long discussions about unenumerated rights that, that travel beyond the dates of, of ratification. Does that mean that you have an additional, that, that originalism is not the only thing that you do, or that originalism allows for these other modes of analysis as well, how do how do we get our, keep ourselves from always being rooted in a terminal seventeen ninety one or a terminal you know amendment dated uh, analysis?
1: So uh, I think originalism, well done, admits that there are other ways of thinking about the thing, but often you know certain self conscious originalists play special. They start with text history and structure, and they often prioritize it in certain ways. And again, it'll be easier if I show you what it's not, but I'm very grateful, Andy, that you're reminding our audience that I wrote a whole book on America's Unwritten Constitution, because I believe that there are lots of things that aren't in the text itself. And the text itself tells me to take some of these things seriously. It tells me in the Ninth Amendment that there are rights beyond those that are Enumerated, that is textualized, itemized, listed. I think that's the the, the Ninth Amendment. Let's just actually read it together because if we start with the text, as I always would, you know, the text sometimes is telling me you got to go beyond the text. And to be faithful to the text, I have to follow that guidance. So the Ninth Amendment, I want to get it right, is the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Now let me interpolate. The enumeration, that means the textual enumeration, shall not be construed to deny or disparage other rights retained by the people. So where do I find those other rights? Well, here's one easy and obvious place by reading between the lines, by saying, for example, okay, freedom of the press is enumerated, freedom of speech is enumerated, but what about the freedom to, for example, send or receive a private letter? Let's imagine it's a letter about some political issue, uh, for example, sent by one politician to another. Well, it's not oral speech, and it's not the product of a printing press, someone from a certain very narrow point of view. It's not freedom of speech and freedom of the press, but from a broader point of view, especially when I have the Ninth Amendment saying there are other rights, and I'm thinking, well, the First Amendment is actually about political communication more broadly, and, and not just political, I would say religious and other things as well. So the Ninth Amendment is actually telling me, don't read the text into, when it comes to rights in too narrow way. Now, it's not telling me is telling me that there are more rights than are enumerated, but nevertheless, But the text itself is telling me sometimes you have to go beyond the text. So what's the easiest way? You go beyond by reading between the lines, so to speak. Okay? But that's not the only way. And we've talked about other texts, like the, the, the famous sentence of the 14th Amendment, that no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens. That's their fundamental rights. It doesn't itemize them all. So where do I find them? Well, uh, the adjacent history of the 14th Amendment and our precedents and practices tell uh, me, um, and the text itself gestures in this direction, to pay attention to um, what actually citizens understand their rights to be by looking at actual practice of American governments day to day. So yes, I start with the written Constitution, but I often have to go beyond it. it. It talks about judicial power. Well, judicial power, part of judicial power is actually the power to uh, set and follow precedents of a certain sort. How much? What kind of precedent-based analysis would be consistent with a written constitution? And what kind would actually start to displace and, and overwhelm and undermine the written constitution? So what I write in America's Unwritten Constitution is we are all textualists. We are all living constitutionalists of a certain sort. That's what I believed. Um, and still believe but now it is true that in certain canon you know very prominent places I almost used the word canonical it was the wrong word to use in certain prominent places the court seems not to even begin you know with the Constitution's text and that's why it's going to be easiest to see what originalism really is by also now showing you um, what it isn't. A, a, a prominent examples of legal performances, especially judicial performances, that aren't really uh, originalist at all. And let me start with Roe v. Wade. Here's a sentence that, to me, um, is a really problematic sentence. And Roe v. Wade, it's at page 153 of the opinion of the court, which is in volume 410 of United States Reports, The case begins at 113, and at page 153, here's what Justice Blackman writes for the court. This right of privacy, whether it be founded in the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty and restrictions upon state action, as we feel it is, or as the district court determined in the 9th Amendment's reservation of rights to the people, is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. That's the the single most important sentence in a row. That's where they actually say abortion is protected. It's preceded with just what we lawyers call a string site of of cases with no analysis, just mentioning a whole bunch of cases. And then just, boom, out of the blue, just saying it's broad enough to encompass abortion. Now, three pages later, they're going to say, oh, all the cases we just mentioned, they're inherently different. Not just different, but inherently different. And so I'm saying, like, well, then, how did you get it from that string side of cases? It's not even good precedent-based analysis. But what about starting with the text? The court is so uninterested in starting the text that they say, well, whether it's the 14th Amendment or the 9th Amendment, who cares? You know, whatever. That's, but that's not the, the, the only problem. With what they say, because you could say, yeah, they're actually. Achil, like you yourself sometimes say, well, there's a certain result, and I could get it from A, or I could get it from B or C. It's actually such an easy and obvious thing that there there are several pillars or sources. You know, we came up with different pillars for our um, anti-ISL um, idea in, in a previous um, episode. So fine, but it's it's not just that he says, well, you could get it from the Ninth Amendment or the Fourteenth. And the Ninth, by the way, is only about initially the federal government so you'd have to figure out why that limits the state of Texas but Blackman isn't remotely interested even in that. He talks about the concept of personal liberty. Well, wow. That's pretty broad because any law could implicate the concept of personal liberty. How about, you know, the The idea that you have personal liberty to carry a gun anywhere, anytime, you know, with no restrictions, any kind of gun you want, an Uzi, is that personal liberty or the right to blow coke up your nose or, or to gamble all day long? with no restrictions whatsoever, or to swing your fists however you like, no matter who happens to be within swinging distance of of your fist, if someone's jaw happens to be in your way, a concept of personal liberty, or the liberty to skin your cat, um, your pet cat, alive, or the liberty to be free from a vaccine mandate, or free from a requirement that you get insurance for your car, or you get a license for your car, or the personal liberty to be free from seatbelt laws or helmet laws. So, wow, that's pretty broad concept of personal liberty. And, and the Constitution's text, and here's the big point, doesn't quite say any of that. And we, the readers, wouldn't even know that if we're first-semester law students, as I was when I first read the language I just quoted you, because Harry Blackman and the Supreme Court, this is the damning fact, never even quote the language of the Constitution that they're supposed to be starting with. And if you look at that language, you will see that it doesn't actually really protect a concept of personal liberty at all as such. I'm going to read you the key language. It's from the 14th Amendment, and you're going to immediately see the problem, which is what I saw the first semester of law school, and I I thought I was just confused. No, Harry Blackburn is confused because he's not doing constitutional law at all, which starts with the text, even if you have to go beyond it. The 14th Amendment, key sentence that he's waving toward and doing nothing more than that, says, nor, quote, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Now note, unquote, note, it doesn't say liberty any more than property, and it doesn't say that these are much less a concept of liberty, but fine, you can say that's implicit, liberty is, is a concept or something, but it can be restricted by fair procedures, by due process. The guarantee is not of the concept of professional liberty. It's a guarantee of fair courtroom procedures, what lawyers call procedural due process. It's not actually a guarantee that judges are going to look at every law that possibly implicates liberty and basically decide for themselves whether the legislature's reasons are good enough to restrict liberty, whether we're talking about a vaccine mandate or a tax law or a law limiting your liberty to belch smoke into the atmosphere or to carry whatever weapon you want wherever you want or to kill your cat um, in cruel ways. So, Roe is what originalism is not, or put differently, originalism is what. Roe is not, and in saying all of this, I'm channeling a very important article by a very prominent scholar, one of my heroes growing up, John Hart Ely. I'm going to read you what he says about just this passage from Roe versus Wade, but first a word or two about Ely. Ely was a preeminent liberal constitutional scholar, the greatest probably of of his generation, let's say from 1970 to 1995, 2000, something like that. He started out, he he, uh, went to Yale Law School, clerked for Earl Warren. Warren thought so well of him that he brought him onto the Warren Commission as his assistant. He was a public defender, Then he started his career at Yale Law School as the junior professor, the only one in his cohort to get tenure. Um, It was hard back then. Um, Then went to Harvard Law School, then went to Stanford Law School, where he was the dean of the Stanford Law School. Wrote a preeminent book about American constitutional law called Democracy and Distrust, which sold more copies than any other book in constitutional law of its generation. And dedicated to to Earl Warren, the dedication is to Earl Warren. You don't need many heroes if you choose carefully. Ely was a liberal, a Warren Court liberal. The book is a full throated defense of the Warren Court in general. Ely was pro-choice. And here's what John Ely wrote in an article in Yale law journal called The Wages of Crying Wolf. I think in previous episodes I might have said it was one of the 10 most cited law review articles of all time. That, If I said that, it was a mistake. It's one of the 25 most cited. Here's, and he likes the policy result in Roe. I'm going to read you just a few sentences. Roe is, nevertheless, a very bad decision. It's bad because it is bad constitutional law, or rather because it is not constitutional law and gives almost no sense of an obligation to try to be. He says, look, constitutionalism, originalism, isn't just sort of simple-minded, just looking at the text and thinking it decides everything. But here's what it is. Although the identification of a constitutional connection is only the beginning of analysis, It is a necessary beginning. You see, you have to start with something in the text. And it could be the structure of the text even as a whole. And you could say, well, that's what the concept of liberty is. But the concept... Actually, if you just quoted it, even if you're immediately moving beyond it, it would be blindingly clear to anyone that it's not actually the concept of liberty as such. It's life, liberty, and property protected by a promise of fair procedures. And if it's a liberty clause, oh, it's a property clause as well. And that means that Lochner maybe was perfectly okay. Lochner, you know, striking down all sorts of of laws because the court thought that they just weren't justified by good enough reasons to intrude upon fat cat's right to run sweatshops to pay sub minimum wages than to demand ridiculous worker hours and, and you could say oh that's the liberty of the sweatshop owner or his property and contract rights and the court for 50 years did say stuff like that but that got overturned in the 1930s in the name of a certain kind of originalism, led by a liberal originalist named Hugo Black, who says, oh, the Constitution doesn't say that. So I've now told you, I hope, a little bit more about what originalism is and isn't. It's starting with the text, paying attention to its initial history. Often you have to go way beyond that. But at the end of the day, if a precedent you think just is egregiously misinterpreting the relevant constitutional clause or Clauses or provisions—you've got. To, you start with the text, and you kind of end with the text, even though in between you do a lot of other stuff.
0: So I think that uh, this—we're going to see that this applies to our analysis of the dissent when we talk, particularly about liberty. So before we leave, your assessment of the that sentence in the Fourteenth Amendment—you're saying that uh, this is uh, a guarantee of procedural due process—that uh, that life, liberty, and property. Yes. You know, can't be uh, taken essentially by by the uh, state without procedural due process,
1: right? That's the word. Process is a kind of pretty clear signifier of of procedures, and its
0: its opposite is substance. Correct. So, where does then the doctrine of substantive due process come from? Does it come from that sentence? Also, do also do people do judges that? Talk about substantive due process, read it into that sentence as well. So, in other words, do they have a different reading of it than you do, or do they get it from another place? They
1: they wave toward that sentence, and that sentence I read to you from the 14th Amendment. It has a counterpart earlier in the 5th Amendment, which limits the federal government. And so if you're saying, where does it come from? The, The granddaddy of substantive due process cases is Dred Scott, which says, oh... When Congress limits the ability of a slaveholder to, to, to take his master
0: on, onto soil that Congress says is free soil. I think you mean that the master can't take his slave onto free soil.
1: That's deprivation of property, and it's wrong because we decide that Congress doesn't have a good enough reason for preventing slave masters from taking their slaves um, onto free soil. And I think that was just preposterous. Lincoln calls that an astonisher in legal history. If Dred Scott is right about that, oh, it's invalidating not just congressional laws prohibiting slavery in certain areas, free soil laws, laws like the Missouri Compromise, laws like, um, which no member of James Monroe's cabinet thought was unconstitutional, even John C. Calhoun, laws like the Northwest Ordinance, which George Washington signed his name to as one of the first 10 statutes, it's in, invalidating the entire Republican Party platform of the 1850s, is, which is pr- prohibit slavery in the territories, fr- free soil. That's what they believed in. And it's actually saying every state that prohibits slavery on its soil, that every free soil state. Massachusetts says, don't bring slaves here. Connecticut, don't bring slaves here. Taney was actually saying, oh, they're violating due process. Now, maybe technically the federal constitution doesn't prevent that because before the Civil War, it doesn't limit state governments, but only the federal government. It's saying, "Oh, England, which is a free soil jurisdiction, saying if you bring a slave to England, you will lose, your, you will forfeit your property in, in that slave." That's Somerset's case. Tawney saying, "Oh, that's unconstitutional. That's a violation of due process. Not unconstitutional because the U.S. Constitution doesn't apply to Britain, but but the land that gave us due process, because this language comes from Magna Carta and and, and later British enactments." So. Tony just made that up. He so just, really, what he's and, saying and there, calls,
0: right? But before we leave it, I mean, let's let's try and figure out what he, you know, because this you're this is this goes beyond Dred Scott, um, you know, the concept of substantive due process. So I think it's important that we understand it, whether or not we agree with. what right. He it. he
1: only devotes a sentence to it. He says you could hardly call this due process of law, and Lincoln just said, to make let me complete the point calls this an astonisher in legal history. He's calling bullshit. On the Dred Scott Court, because they just made it all up, and and wow, they're saying Congress can't prohibit slavery anywhere in the territories, which is the Republican Party platform. And by the way, when states are doing it, it's wrong; it's a violation of rights. Maybe we, the Supreme Court, can't reverse them, but when states like Massachusetts, free that the free states are all you know rights violating, and so is England, and this is not altogether different, you see, from Roe saying, oh, the laws of all the states are unconstitutional. All the states are, at least, you know, in 1973, no state with the possible exception of New York actually complied with the rules that Roe laid down. And so Dred Scott just made up this thing. And it's one of the most despised cases in history. And Harry Blackman and his colleagues, I'm not sure they know all of that. And they are reviving this substantive due process notion with their language, their breezy language of the concept of liberty. And why don't they know that? I'm going to be honest with you. Because they weren't taught quite all about Dred Scott. And they weren't taught about the court and all of the bad things that it it, it has done in history. I don't think that my friend Anthony Kennedy was taught that. Now, there's one other, and I know you want to jump in, Andy, one other really high visibility case in the American constitutional tradition that's associated with the substantive due process idea, other than Roe, which has now been overruled, and Casey, which built on Roe. The other most famous one, alongside Roe and Casey, which are now tossed on the ash heap of judicial history, and Dred Scott, which was overturned by the Civil War Amendment, is a case called Lochner, which you could call the concept of liberty, liberty of contract, We could say it's really more about property in that trilogy, life, liberty, and property. But Lochner was a landmark decision from the early 1900s. It embodied an entire era. It's called the Lochner era from about 1885 to 1937, plus or minus, in which the court was striking down all sorts of um, economic regulations, um, minimum wage laws, maximum hour laws, consumer protection laws, and the like, environmental laws of various sorts, or proto-environmental laws of various sorts. The Supreme Court was invalidating all of these things, saying, well, they infringe on liberty or they infringe on property without a good enough reason, and we, the court, decide what's a good reason. So Lochner was repudiated Early in, in Franklin Roosevelt's second term, a, a new blood came on the court and struck that down. And our audience will know I think that what just happened to Roe in 2022 is very similar to what happened to Lochner. In 1937, Uh, too exuberant, a concept of liberty or concept of property was being smacked down. And so what just happened, the earthquake that we're trying to explain is how Roe has gone from being, for so many people, the canonical case, the Brown versus Board of Education, the um, archetype, uh, the paradigm of what the court rightly does. That's what so many people thought before and still think today, but it's gone from that in on the Supreme Court from being the Brown of the modern era to being the Dred Scott and the Lochner of the modern era. He's gone from Dante's highest circle of, of paradise to the lowest
0: circle of the Inferno. Uh, and, and, that's, and that's an earthquake. I think that's going to be a difficult analogy for a lot of our listeners, because to liken Roe to Dred Scott is to liken abortion rights to slavery. So let, let me just be clear that, my, from my point of view, when I listen to you, I believe you are talking about the legal reasoning here, not the policy outcome. You're not saying that having abortion rights is the same as, as having slavery, but rather that the reasoning used in, in Dred Scott uh, is, is flawed, and the reasoning used in Roe is flawed in a similar way.
1: I'm saying that and more, Andy, and I know you're my friend and you're trying to protect me, but, you know, just like Robert Bork just kept, you know, talking and talking and talking and he should have just shut up in his confirmation hearings. But here's why Roe and abortion are so hard. Because each side thinks it is the rightful heir, H-E-I-R, the descendant of Abraham Lincoln. Here's what we, on the pro-choice side, believe, and I'm pro-choice, that we especially want to value and champion women's liberty and equality. And these are Reconstruction values. They're actually anti-slavery values. Slavery was a restriction on liberty and equality. Half of the slaves were female and male slavery paradigmatically took the form of working people in the in the fields until the, often cruelly but female slavery often actually was very gendered it used females slaves reproductive capacities against them females were treated as sexual playthings they were raped they were made to be breeders against their will and wet nurses against their will they were literally Forced for the master's um, enjoyment and profit to go through, pun intended, forced labor. Okay, for men, forced labor was maybe you know cotton picking, and for many and for many women too. But for other women, it was forced labor to produce new property for for the massa. Okay, so we think many of us who are pro-choice. We're actually on Lincoln's side of this. This is reproductive rights are about the emancipation, the liberation of women, and we think the 13th Amendment is relevant to all of that. Here's, though, the folks on the other side, because honestly, I don't think the dissenters you know, quite heard the majority. I think the majority actually was trying to hear the, the argument on the other side a little bit more because they had to you know, directly confront Roe, just so you hear the argument on the other side really clearly. Because this is an argument that lots of women believe in, pro-life women, anti-abortion women they think oh my gosh, you want to talk about the most powerless folks in society or element society it's not women because at least women can vote. It's actually they would say innocent unborn human life which can't even protect itself at the ballot And Akhil, you say women are being treated as slaves but actually slaves couldn't vote and women can vote they can protect themselves at the ballot box and some of them say and we're women and we're pro- Life, women, anti-choice, anti-abortion women. But here's what Dred Scott says. Because we think, actually, we are the party of Lincoln. Because Dred Scott says, blacks can't be citizens. And Roe says, I are not persons. And Dred Scott takes an issue where the states are disagreeing and actually nationalizes a rule and nationalizes an immoral rule. There were slave states and free states, and Dred Scott you know basically says everyone has to be a slave state. Well, Roe does the same thing. States actually had different rules, and it makes it put down a national rule and it nationalizes the immoral position. Dred Scott made the Republican Party platform literally. Um, unconstitutional. The Republican Party platform is prohibit slavery in the, the territories, federal territories. Roe does the same. Dred Scott did that. Roe does the same thing. It makes the Republican Party platform unconstitutional. They think that actually there are striking similarities between Roe, not just and Lochner, but between Roe and Dred Scott. And now, Andy, you know what Scalia was actually saying in the Casey case. And maybe we should read the passage. The Casey decision ends with a. Clea's opinion, uh, his dissent in Casey, ends with a very rhetorical passage that's all about not the author of Lochner, but the author of Dred Scott, Roger Tawney. And maybe we actually we can read it because there are all these layers of meaning, you see. Um, um, so um, I'm saying to a certain kind of of conservative Roe is not just like Lochner it is like Dred Scott but it's complicated because to a certain kind of liberal actually Roe is much more like the Emancipation Proclamation you see and that's what makes abortion so hard is neither side is really great at even hearing the other side and so let me actually can we uh, read the passage from Casey
0: Sure. <clears throat> All right, so here's the quote from Justice Scalia's dissent in uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey.
1: It's right at the very end of his opinion. Mm-hmm. This is his grand finale.
0: There comes vividly to mind a portrait by Emanuel Leutze that hangs in the Harvard Law School. Roger Brooke Tawney painted in 1859 the 82nd year of his life, the 24th of his chief justiceship, the second after his opinion in Dred Scott. He is all in black, sitting in a shadowed red armchair, left hand resting upon a pad of paper in his lap, right hand hanging limply, almost lifelessly, beside the inner arm of the chair. He sits facing the viewer and staring straight out. There seems to be on his face and in his deep-set eyes an expression of profound sadness and disillusionment. Perhaps he always looked that way, even when dwelling upon the happiest of thoughts. But those of us who know how the luster of his great chief justiceship came to be eclipsed by Dred Scott cannot help believing that he had that case. It's already apparent consequences for the court and it's soon to be played out consequences for the nation burning on his mind. I expect that two years earlier, he too had thought himself, quote, calling the contending sides of national controversy to end their national division by accepting a common mandate rooted in the Constitution, unquote. And then he ends the dissent saying, we should get out of this area where we have no right to be and where we do neither ourselves nor the country any good by remaining.
1: So the quote is a quote This about uh, calling the contending sides of the national controversy to end their division by accepting a common mandate, ruin the Constitution. That's, of course, the plurality opinion that he's mocking for its grandiosity, its pomposity, its vision of judicial supremacy. Here's, for example, an earlier passage. We talked about how this is how Scalia ends, but earlier in his opinion, he has this line, the Imperial Judiciary, capital I, capital J, lives. So, um, and uh, so he's responding here directly and personally, there are layers of meaning in this. This is about Harvard Law School. Okay? It's about Roger Tawney. Here's one key fact that, you see, the audience needs to understand, to understand all the layers I mean here. Roger Tawney was Catholic. So is Antonin Scalia. So actually, you know, we're all the members of the majority in, in Dobbs. He's Catholic and he went to Harvard Law School and he's talking directly to Anthony Kennedy, who's Catholic and went to Harvard Law School. And, and he is saying, and they were both appointed by Ronald Reagan within two years of each other, and he's, of course, quoting Kennedy's language back at Kennedy and saying, Tony, you're being like Tawny here. Okay, that's, that's a le- it's, of course, it's, it's addressed to all of us as, as well, but, but Scalia was a gifted rhetorician, even though I don't think he was actually as gifted an originalist because he didn't know enough history. More about that later today and in future episodes. Abortion is hard because each side not only has moral arguments on its side and a, and a vision, and, and Andy, you keep reminding our audience, and I'm grateful that you do, that I'm personally pro-choice, but it's, it's hard not just because... Um, it, it implicates each of us very personally and deeply, our vision of, of the meaning of, of life, um, but also because as Americans, we are all, I believe, children of Lincoln. And See, originalists understand that, that there is a, a kind of national narrative here that we have to pay attention to, um, but both sides actually, each side thinks it's the true child uh, of Lincoln, One, because of women's liberty and equality and the need for their full emancipation. The other, because they say they're most powerless today, that the the slaves of 2022 are are not women, um, who at least can vote, but innocent, unborn human life. And Roe is actually not merely Lochner. It's Dred Scott, and I promise you, and Scalia is saying all of that when he invokes Tanya and Dred Scott. I'm not hallucinating here.
0: Okay. So, but before we leave this uh, and get to the dissent, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, you, we we talked about substantive due process, and you mentioned that it, it comes from Dred Scott. It appears in Lochner, but it also appears in a whole series of cases, right? And you may not feel that it's the best argument, but it's used in the Griswold series of cases, correct?
1: Um, Griswold itself denies that. It says it's zones of privacy and penumbra, the Bill of Rights, and oh, this isn't substantive due process. And Griswold denies that because it's authored by William Douglas, who comes on the court, right, as Lochner and all its works are being renounced. And, and Andy, I, ho- do, I hope you caught that reference. <laughs> okay. Okay, Godfather so, one.
0: Yeah, you got me. Okay. So
1: Douglas is coming on, to, Douglas came onto the court as Lochner and all its works are being renounced. So he's never going to admit that this is really substantive due process. He's going to say penumbra zone of privacy, something else.
0: Um, so in cases like Lawrence um, and so forth, you don't feel also... Again, I know you can apply an equality analysis to it, but um, doesn't the court, in the opinion, also use a a substitute process argument?
1: And indeed, um, the due process clause is used by the court to incorporate the Bill of Rights against the states, and that's why... Hugo Black says, no, we should call these privileges immunities, and that's why Akilah Amar, as a scholar, says, oh, I, I think this is privileges immunities, and that's what Thomas was talking about in his quirk, very quirky, um, very scholarly concurrence. Um, he cares about these things in a way, and maybe you, you can mock him, and some have, but he cares about constitutional text in a way that the dissenters, like Harry Blackman, whom they're channeling, are utterly nonchalant about the text. So you're seeing maybe a certain kind of hyper-originalism, and there are different flavors of originalism. In Thomas, it's not quite exactly my flavor in all respects, but you can contrast that with the nonchalance of who cares where it comes from,
0: whatever. So Akil, here's so, so what I'm getting at here, uh, which I haven't mentioned yet, is in her recent confirmation hearings, uh, Katenji Brown-Jackson made reference to substantive due process. So here's what she said. She said... Uh, the Supreme Court has interpreted the due process clause of the Constitution to include a substantive provision, not just procedural rights relative to government action, but also the protection of certain personal rights related to intimacy and autonomy. These include the right to rear one's children, along with rights to travel and also to marry. Uh, these are the kinds of things that quali- the kinds of things that qualify are implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, or are deeply rooted in our country's history and tradition. So, um, you know, I think it's important that we clarify just what this means, because here we have a new justice that believes that, uh, that this is an important part of the Constitution. Um, and as we start to look at the dissent and some of the things they say about these things, I think it's important that that, that concept, as understood by these justices, be clarified.
1: Right. So note what she didn't say. She didn't start with, this is what the Constitution says. She didn't quote the text of the Constitution the way I did. She starts with what the Supreme Court has said, and then she had a whole bunch of other things, including quotes like ordered liberty that are just quotes from Supreme Court case law, and that's because she's a good lower court judge. And as a lower court judge, you actually follow the vertical precedent of the Supreme Court. And that's what you're... And she was a good law student, and that's what you're often tested on in a con law class, unless it's my con law class, in which case you actually need to know the text of the Constitution as well as the case law. And she actually, I'm sure, you know, passed the bar with flying colors, and I've never taken the bar. I'm telling my audience now, you know, a year and a half into this podcast. Uh, I'm just a law professor. But I'm sure, she, you know, and when you take the bar, you're tested on the Supreme Court doctrine, the, the various formulations. So she's showing herself to... To be an outstanding lower federal court judge who knows what the Supreme Court has said about all these things. What I am saying is, and it, this is our in you know, our previous episode, the special episode, you know, I actually explained in The Hill. Um, and um, in my Senate testimony for Kavanaugh that the job of a Supreme Court justice is different. And I explain that to our audience in our on precedent, that vertical precedent, uh, if you're a low, uh, judge on an inferior court, operates very differently than if you're on the Supreme Court. So whether she's going to keep being a doctrinalist, a precedent person, a la Kagan when she's on the now that she's on the Supreme Court or whether she's going to actually develop more of an interest in an aptitude for originalism for looking directly to the text of the constitution martin luther like that remains to be seen almost everyone comes to the court as a precedent person cuz that's what they do day in and day out as judges on lower federal courts and to become an originalist you either have to do a lot of reading on your own of primary sources, and a la Hugo Black, like Clarence Thomas, or you actually have to, at the very least, read a lot of constitutional scholarship by originalists, and and Black did that, although there was much less of it back then, and, and, and Thomas does that as well, um, because it's probably unrealistic to expect that the justices are going to be able to do all this deep originalist research into not just the text but the the broader context of each and every provision on their own it's it's going to be a very rare individual who does that but but thomas has spent many years actually doing a lot of reading and it's why he's more quirky than the others, because he's actually a more committed originalist. of, And again, originalism comes in different flavors, and his flavor isn't, in
0: all respects, exactly the same as mine. Right. But if she's accurately reflecting Supreme Court precedent, then there are members of the Supreme Court then that would agree with her that this is what that clause in the 14th Amendment and in the 5th Amendment that you mentioned says. So when we begin to analyze the dissent, we have to keep in mind that your interpretation of that sentence in the 14th Amendment is not that of the justices on the Supreme Court, correct?
1: Well, those three, and right. just to remind you, they were in dissent, and just to remind you, Katenji Brand Jackson is testifying before, actually, it's clear
0: that that's the side that lost. I just want to explain. The reason I'm, saying, I'm bringing this up is that You know, when you talked about this last time, you just said, well, it just says, you know, due process, and you ignored the fact that the justices have interpreted this as meaning, as having substantive due process meaning. Um, So that... But But what I am
1: telling you is, Dobbs is a really important case, not just on abortion, but on method more generally, and on the concept of substantive due process in particular, beyond abortion. And Dobbs expresses great skepticism of substantive due process as a broad and robust concept, except insofar as it protects rights that are either deeply rooted in tradition or very strongly backed by modern consensus as determined by state counting. And that is not the version of substantive due process that we saw in Dred Scott or Lochner or maybe even some of the cases that then nominee Jackson was alluding to. Dobbs is a statement not just about abortion but about unenumerated rights analysis more generally. And it privileges the Glucksburg approach, which doesn't repudiate the very concept of substantive unenumerated rights, but has a framework for identifying them that pays a lot of attention to tradition and current state
0: consensus. And, we have to, um, and then where and is that in the Constitution?
1: I would say that's in the Privileges or Immunities Clause of and the Fourteenth Amendment. Amendment. And, and and in that I'm with Justice Thomas, and I would say it's in the Ninth Amendment mm-hmm. as well.
0: Yes. Okay. So now we've done some review of of this question of substantive due process because it's important because that's really to the extent I think that you were saying, well, where does Roe find these rights? I think if it finds it anywhere, that's where it finds it. Right. So Roe cavalierly
1: and casually in effect resurrects Lochner and Dred Scott. And that was always going to be a, a problem, I thought, from a jurisprudential point of view. Now, you know, that's a very schoolmarmish uh, idea. Just um, um, Roe would have um, survived had, it not, had its technical flaws not been connected to a huge set of issues that millions, tens of millions of Americans care passionately about, on, on both sides, but tens of millions of people caring passionately about positions that are utterly antithetical to what Roe laid down. But Roe, just by way of reminder, invalidated the laws of almost all the states. So that's one problem. And it did so without a clear textual basis. And that's a second and kind of related problem. And third, by reviving an idea, substantive due process, that's associated with some of the Coorsworth's decisions, and that's a third and related problem, and without a clear framework for cabining, amorphous a blob, so um, unwieldy a beast as substantive due process, and that's a fourth and related problem. Later, cases like Glucksberg didn't repudiate substance of due process in every, in every way, shape, or form, but really restricted it by saying, if you're going to go beyond the text of the Constitution and find unenumerated rights, you really have to locate them in either tradition or current consensus. And to repeat, Roe did not have current consensus on its side, and neither do the dissenters today quite have current consensus on on their side. They'd like you to think that the only problem is that they don't have lots of support from 1868, but the real problem is they also don't have overwhelming support in America today. And if they did have, you know, clear national consensus support in America today, their party, my party, the Democratic Party, should have been able to pass a law immediately in effect, codifying some of the basic elements of, of Roe versus Wade. And um, we control the House, we control the Senate, we control the presidency, and yet we're not even able to quite do that because there's, um, we control them just by a little bit because lots of people on the other side voted against the Democrats on this issue, you see, and because even some of the folks on the Democratic side aren't quite on board on this issue. Um, we're overwhelmingly a pro-choice party, but not universally so. There you have it.
0: Okay, so with all that in mind, let's take a look at the dissent.
1: I'm a critic of the dissent. I, I, I'm a critic of the majority opinion, too, and people have heard in the Dobbs deal what I was hoping for, which is an effort by the liberals to try to f- steal the majority away from Alito by agreeing that the Mississippi law is okay because it gives women enough time to choose and then trying to do a lot of damage control, uh, right to travel. no laws should ever be allowed to to spring back into existence that were adopted before women had the right to vote an emphasis on women's equality, a discussion of the Gadulded case. We, people can go back and listen to the Dobbs deal to hear you know my uh, suggestions, not really uh, emphasizing press and press and press and Liberty, 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 substantive due process, substantive due process, substantive due process, but emphasizing women's equality rooted in the text of the Constitution. I wanted the liberals to try to play an originalist game against an originalist game. And I don't think that's, frankly, what we saw. It wasn't maybe in the cards um, after the oral argument. Our audience can go back and hear my critique of the liberal position in the oral argument, which I thought placed way too much emphasis on precedent and, and didn't talk about women's equality enough, and in particular, women's equality from a constitutional point of view. So here's where I want to begin my critique, which is... The astonishing fact that the words equal protection, as in the Equal Protection Clause, actually, astonishing facts, they're not mentioned at all in Roe, which doesn't talk about really the Constitution's text uh, uh, much at all, but it's not an equality opinion. The words equal protection really don't prominently appear in Casey. There's a, a reference to women's equality, but not Equal Protection Clause. And the words equal protection, as in the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution, actually appear more in the majority opinion than in the dissent, putting aside the appendix, which is, you know, a different sort of thing. So, wow, that's not so great. And the 19th Amendment, which is all about women's political equality, and I think therefore, ah, for sure, their civil equality, not a mention. That's disappointing. And you can say, well, Akhil, you actually don't think it's quite the equal protection clause. You tend to emphasize the idea of equal citizenship and birth equality in the first sentence. Fine, but there's no discussion of that either in the dissent. What is there a discussion of? Mainly this phrase, the concept of liberty, which is just a throwback to Roe and has the same problems of being substantive due process and not paying attention to the fact that it says process. Um, There's a discussion of equality, but not a careful, fine-grained discussion of what the precise inequality is and how judges should react to it. Now, it's going to be complicated because the government is regulating pregnancy and only women can become Pregnant, and there's no quite male counterpart to that. But in things that I have written about abortion issue through the lens of women's equality, and we'll put them online. I'm not going to repeat everything in the podcast because people who are interested can, can read it for themselves. But I wrote a chapter. 20 years ago on what Roe should have said, which I talk a little bit about women's equality. Then I wrote a later chapter for my book, America's Unwritten Constitution. It's called Remembering the Ladies. And, it's, and it makes, in, a, in an elaborate way, the women's equality argument. In a nutshell, here's one version of it. There are several versions that I put forth. But, wow, let's take not innocent, unborn human life. Let's take born human life. A kid is born. A kid needs kidney to survive. The only kidney that matches is the biological father. So let's imagine he's not married to the mother, just to make it a, a very clean hypothetical. But but he could be married to the mother. But the only kidney that matches is the biological father's. We don't require the father to give up his kidney. And he's got two. He, he doesn't need the extra one. But we privilege his bodily liberty and autonomy interests over even born human life. Um, suppose the kid needs just a mere blood transfusion, and blood is renewable, and the, only the father's blood matches. We don't, in general, the law require the father to to give even a drop of his blood, and yet we require the mother to give up her womb for nine months and her liberty and and her plans, and and we do that for women's wombs, but not for men's kidneys or
0: men's blood. Now, I would go further than that, by the way, Keel, because. Childbirth is dangerous from a health point of view. Pregnancy and childbirth are far more risky to the life of the mother than blood transfusion.
1: Forced labor, there you have it. Now, it's tricky for a whole bunch of reasons, that argument is not knocked down. But they don't come close to even discussing on any of this, and that frustrates me, because I'm making originalist arguments rooted in women's equality, and I start, I would start with the citizenship clause of the 14th Amendment that doesn't say race, and it's about everyone born a citizen, born a full and equal citizen, born equal, and then it's elaborate and it's reinforced by the Equal Protection Clause, which which protects this not just for citizens, but for persons more generally, including aliens, and then I talk Talk about the 19th Amendment, which is all about women's political equality and how are you going to be able to serve, to vote equally and to vote equally in. Because I think a woman's place is in the House. And the Senate, you see, that's women's nineteenth amendment, the, and the White House political equality. And how is that going to happen if they're having babies that they didn't really want to to, to to have? So, so I'd start with things that actually are in the Constitution, the Fourteenth Amendment's first sentence and equal protection, and the Nineteenth Amendment, and the broader structural vision of women's equal political, uh, political and civil equality underlying all of that. I'd tell that story. That's an original story. It's not told. I, I, I bring in the 13th Amendment and the forced labor idea that you just alluded to, Andy. Now, it's not a knockdown argument. And, and not only I would, I have done this in previous works that we're going to put online. Here's why it's, it's complicated, because there's nothing quite exactly like pregnancy. People can say, oh, well, pregnancy is different than a kidney for this reason. It's different than blood for that reason. And, and by the way, there's the case called Gedaldig, that says actually laws that discriminate on the basis of pregnancy are not laws that discriminate on the basis of of male-female gender. They distinguish between pregnant persons and non-pregnant persons, and non-pregnant persons includes women as well as men. And, And our audience knows that I think that's silly, because only women can become pregnant, and it's true, not all women are pregnant. But let's imagine a law that, that restricts women who are under eight feet tall. Well, there may be a few women who are over eight feet tall. So that law doesn't discriminate against all women, but only women under eight feet tall. But of course, that's a law that discriminates against women if they're all women on one side, only women on one side. So Gadaldig needs to be, ad- but it's a case on the other side. What does the court say? The court says, well, you know um, um, it, it actually mentions the majority and it says it's clear precedent that mere pregnancy you know is uh, laws that discriminate on the basis of pregnancy are not laws that discriminate on the basis of sex what do they say that argument that pregnancy laws are sex discriminatory laws is squarely foreclosed by our precedence that's Page 10. But my friends, if you are going to overall grow and overall Casey and overall other settled precedents, then it's fair game for the originalist, in the name of originalism for the originalists on the other side to say, let's rethink gadultic. Gedultic is egregious. It's not just wrong, it's egregiously wrong. Now, I'm not saying that every law that disadvantages a pregnant person is unconstitutional. I'm saying it's a sex discriminatory law that actually triggers heightened scrutiny, can only be upheld if it meets, has an exceedingly persuasive justification. That's the language of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the VMI case. And none of that in the dissent, and the 19th Amendment isn't in the dissent, and they don't take Gaduldig on, and I wish they had, but the equality argument isn't knocked down, because I, I would have to actually, you know, um, you have to deal with Gaduldig, and you have to deal with the fact that there's not something that's, it's hard to do a pure equality analysis when there are real biological differences between men and women, because men don't become pregnant. And it's further complicated, because I'm not sure Uh, You need some fancy footwork to explain why an equality analysis draws the line at 24 weeks of of pregnancy, you know, not before, not after, or maybe 15, but we need to explain that. An equality analysis would need to deal with the fact that there are many pro-life women, um, anti-choice women, maybe more anti-choice women than um, anti-choice men you'd have to in effect deal with Amy Coney Barrett who's a woman on the other side as a kind of a symbol and emblem of of all of that in out there in society so so it's it's complicated in various ways this uh, equality analysis the forced labor thing well what if you actually one um, have an abortion at week three Twenty-nine or thirty, we're going to force you to carry through the pregnancy rather than to end it. Why? Because even Roe doesn't give you a right to terminate pregnancy at will, willy-nilly, for any reason at week twenty-nine. It might, if in order to save your own life, perhaps, or or to save your own health. There are complexities. I'm aware of some of these complexities. All I'm saying is, I was disappointed by what the major, by what the um, dissenters actually. Did emphasize just liberty, 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 press and press and press and due process substance to due process, substance to
0: due process, and not equality, quality, equality. So let's, let's talk about where, where they emphasize what they emphasize and where they emphasize it. In the decision, um, where do you find their emphasis on liberty, as you said? Well, a whole bunch of different passages if you just do a word search. So in, on page four of the dissent, um, they say uh, the Constitution will, today's majority holds, provide no shield despite its guarantees of liberty and equality for all.
1: Right, but it doesn't quite, as I said, guarantee liberty in this full-throated way because they don't believe, for example, it guarantees the liberty to carry any gun anywhere, anytime, anyhow or to be free from vaccine mandates, or be free from um, Obamacare mandates, or
0: gambling laws, or, or, or drug laws, or, you know, just all sorts of stuff. Well, they don't address that, but they do say that the right to terminate a pregnancy arose straight out of the right to purchase and used contraception, on page
1: 4. Um, and I would say, wow, there are some, uh, Roe itself said, and I'm quoting it, those situations are inherently different. Inherently different, that's Roe versus Wade itself, and I agree with Roe on that. And people of goodwill actually do think it's really different when you're talking about a 20-week-old fetus on the one hand and a sponge or a cervical cap that, uh, in the barrier method that prevents a sperm from ever meeting an egg, you know, such that you don't even have a zygote with 46 unique chromosomes. You know, you have a sperm, millions of them that could meet with different eggs and form millions of
0: different humanoids. Well, they go on when they're discussing this. They say that the court, and they're quoting Roe here, the court explained that a long line of precedents, quote, founded in the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty, unquote, protected individual decision making related to, quote, marriage, procreation, contraception, family relationships, and child rearing and education. Unquote.
1: Right, and just to repeat, two pages later, the court said that was at page 152 and 153 of Roe versus Wade, and then just a couple of pages later, I'll tell you exactly how many, at page 159, okay, so six pages later, the situation is therefore inherently different from marital intimacy— or bedroom possession of obscene material, or marriage, or procreation, or education, with which Eisenstadt and Griswold, Stanley, Loving, Skinner, and Pierce, and Meyer were respectively concerned.
0: So they, they break down Casey as being basically two things. One is uh, precedent. You know about yes. about the doctrine of precedent, and, I, and
1: we're not going to repeat that. Our audience has heard me at nauseum on um, in our earlier uh, episodes on precedent, yes. and why I think Casey was actually wrong. and And I'm in print as as having that view all the way back to a forward that I wrote in the Harvard Law Review in that appeared in uh, November 2000, and my chapter called "Precedent's Proper Place." in my America's Unwritten Constitution book from 2012. I could be wrong on all of these things, of course, but these are principled positions that I've staked out about how constitutional law is properly done over many years. And just to repeat, what Casey said about precedent was itself unprecedented. And this is why I was so annoyed when these memes were out there you know saying we've never done this before we've never done this before blah 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 that's not true.
0: Yes, so they separated out here these arguments and so here they say that they're actually going to talk about precedent later. And then on page 9 they say the key thing now is the substantive aspect of the court's considered conclusion that the essential holding of Roe versus Wade should be retained and once again reaffirmed. That's from Casey. Mhm. Central to that conclusion now this is the dissent. Central to that conclusion was a full-throated restatement of a woman's right to choose. Like Roe, Casey grounded that right in the 14th Amendment guarantee of liberty. Mm -hmm. That guarantee encompasses realms of conduct not specifically referenced in the Constitution.
1: That's just like Katenji Brown-Jackson, because the subject of that sentence is the court, the court, the court, and not the Constitution, the Constitution, the Constitution. The court rooted it in, but if if it's actually rooted in, show me where actually the Constitution says that. Otherwise, you're just telling me, oh, it's not just Harry Blackman whom Vic clerked for, it's Anthony Kennedy whom I adore, it's David Suter whom I adore, it's Adam um, Sandra Day O'Connor with whom I, I've worked. I know her a little bit less well than I know the, the other two. But but you know, I have great respect for, for her. But it's just those people and not the Constitution itself.
0: Well here's what they say. They they, they don't quite say it, but they 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 are trying to dance around the Constitution at least. So it says, that guarantee encompasses realms of conduct not specifically referenced in the Constitution. Marriage is mentioned nowhere in that document. Yet the court was, quote, no doubt correct, unquote, to protect the freedom to marry against state interference.
1: Actually, three people do not have a right to get married and four people do not have a right to get married. So there's no polygamy. There's no polyamory. There's no polyandry. Um, There's not a right of adult cousins to get married in in most jurisdictions, adult incest um, uh, or adult siblings in any jurisdiction, even uh, when they're past the age of consent. It's not quite true that there's this full-throated right to marry in any and all circumstances. That right to marry is, in fact, constrained by a kind of Glucksberg analysis of state counting. And in addition, some of those uh, marriage cases were in fact about equality rights above and beyond just pure marriage rights, interracial equality, and same-sex marriage equality, which is about sexual orientation equality, sex equality, and race equality. And we've talked about all those in previous episodes, so I'm not going to go over all that you know in, in, in detail yet again.
0: So you're saying then that marriage, although... There are certain aspects of marriage that are that are certain kinds granted, of marriage granted protection well, by virtue of equality. So you can't, yes. you know, say, well, you can't marry because of your race yes. or your yes. Or, if
1: there's a white person and if you say, uh, let's call her Mary, you know, and you say, well, a white a man named Guy can marry Mary, but a black fellow named Guy can't marry. Well, that actually race discrimination between the two guys, you know, uh, capital G-U-I. So you can't do that, Brown versus Board of Education. Now, um, when it comes to same-sex marriage, if... Patrick is allowed to marry Mary, but not Patricia, well, now you're actually discriminating between Patrick and Patricia, and that's sex discrimination. And if heterosexuals are allowed to to marry each other, but not same-sex persons, now you're actually discriminating against certain people because they're born gay. Those are my views. You, You don't have to agree with them, but you see why. That's why I think equality... Is a really important concept in the in the whole equation that they're missing when they just say liberty liberty, liberty, and especially because marriage in particular. Is liberty traditionally is kind of negative liberty, what the government can't do to you, not what it must do for you, like you know, give you a license to have certain you know, privileges, um, tax privileges and other things, the great privilege of actually maybe paying higher taxes as a married couple, the so-called marriage penalty. Liberty is traditionally understood as negative liberty, so liberty is not the best way. And uh, to think about loving versus Virginia, interracial marriage and Obergefell, it's one aspect, but those were easier cases um, as equality cases than they were as liberty cases. Loving was easier, at least on the counting method, because lots and lots of states actually recognized
0: interracial marriage. So it, it actually qualified on both counts, both uh,
1: Yeah, um, but there is still this slight complexity about a privilege against the government, uh, negative liberty rather than an entitlement to some kind of special government offering.
0: And, it's, and then they go on to say now in this analysis, and the guarantee of liberty encompasses conduct today that was not protected at the time of the 14th Amendment.
1: I agree with that, and I actually think Glucksberg agrees with that, and Glucksberg is the Dobbs analysis, so they're reading Dobbs too narrowly, which is actually dangerous going forward because I'd want to insist that Dobbs didn't actually just focus on 1868 but actually invited accounting analysis today. I understand why the dissenters don't want to focus on that because they don't want to admit that lots of people in the here and now disagree, their fellow citizens disagree with them about this and they're taking that issue away from the American voters. And I understand why they're saying because, you know, we don't put liberty to a vote.
0: Oh, except when it comes to guns in New York, and then it should be put to a vote. You're being sarcastic about those, correct? Yes. Yes. I just want to clarify. And that. and that's
1: maybe wrong on my part, because actually, um, you're right, Andy, this is a podcast that, in fact, in general, doesn't love sarcasm, because but I'm trying to take their argument seriously, and show you why it just doesn't work at all. But I'm taking the best form of their argument. I'm not actually mischaracterizing it. What they actually just say is liberty, without careful definition, and liberty can't quite do the work, especially constitutionally, because there is no guarantee of liberty as such in the Constitution, any more than there's a guarantee of property as such in the Constitution.
0: So they follow up that statement about that uh, there's conduct today that was not protected in 1868 by saying, by quoting uh, themselves, by saying it is settled now, the court said, though it was not always so, that the Constitution places limits on a state's right to interfere with a person's most basic decisions about family and parenthood, as well as bodily integrity.
1: And some of that I completely agree with, and again... I don't actually think the majority disagrees that there can be new privileges and immunities that post-date 1791 and that post-date 1868. And one of the things, for example, that the Bruin case decided the same week says is that a right to carry a gun in public, a concealed weapon, is a modern day, privilege and immunity, in effect, um, uh, liberty right, because 43 or 44 states recognize it. And what did the liberals say in the dissent in that case? Oh, a lot of those laws that, uh, that recognize that are of recent vintage. Well, and now this is a little sarcastic, but Justice Breyer meet Justice Breyer. Justice Sotomayor meet Justice Sotomayor. Justice Kagan meet Justice Kagan okay? So, yes, that was sarcastic too, um, but but I'm a little frustrated because I'm actually trying to have a consistent framework for, you know, rights that I like, contraception, uh, reproductive choice, and rights that personally I'm not that wild about, like, you know, having guns everywhere. That's just, I'm, I'm not a gun guy. So I find myself in the awkward position of being basically personally anti-gun and pro-choice and being cited. Fairly and honestly, by both majority opinions for anti choice and pro gun opinions that I actually think on the law are right. Or at least Dobbs is right, unless you actually talk about equality, which the dissenters didn't. And I wish and I beg them, as our audience will know, to do that even before oral argument. I said, We're making a mistake, you know, talking about precedent, precedent, precedent. And once we lose on precedent, 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 because I understand originalism and its logic, and its logic is precedent yields to text history and structure. But once you lose, now you, don't, you haven't built anything for tomorrow and the day after that, because now the precedent is called Dobbs. The precedent is no longer Casey. The precedent is no longer Roe. They've been tossed on the ash heap of
0: history from the point of view of precedent, you see. They've gone from being Brown to Lochner so when they when they talk about you know they might say, "Well, you want us to talk about equality. We do talk about equality. For example, we said that the Constitution has guarantees of liberty and equality for all, so two things there one they they 're conflating liberty and equality, and I think that you would say that that's that's not right, and secondly, um, equality you know is is circumscribed in certain you know, by, by, by certain clauses and then not referencing the clauses and showing, you know, how they apply. Would you say I, that? I
1: think I, w- I think I wouldn't say conflating. I think it's perfectly okay to add them together, full and equal liberty. I talk about that all the time. So that's not my objection. Um, my objections are that they should have started with constitutional text, and they don't. Just even to signal their respect for the project of, of the, the written constitution. And it's almost as if they're just hostile to that concept, which they don't believe when it comes to statutory interpretation. Elena Kagan says, oh, read the text, read the text, read the text. But they don't, they don't mention the citizenship clause at all. There's one passing reference to equal protection. One! And then in there, it's in the appendix. But the majority actually mentions equal protection more than they do. Wow. No mention whatsoever of the 19th Amendment. No effort to connect the dot between women's civil and political equality, and, and I think 14th Amendment plus 19th Amendment in effect equals ERA, equals civil rights and political rights. But even if we had all of that, okay, then how does the equality analysis actually work? How do you deal with gadaldig? How do you deal with the fact that there's nothing exactly like pregnancy? You just didn't do any of the actual work of comparing You know A and B, and saying A and B are basically the same, and yet the government is treating A so much better than B, and and it's tricky to do that sameness analysis because there's no male counterpart exactly to pregnancy. Oh, and here's one other thing: suppose actually, you know, they prevailed on an idea that Texas can't conscript women's wombs unless it also conscripts, you know, equally men's kidneys and blood. Truthfully there are not that many kidney uh, uh, transplant uh, scenarios or blood transfusion scenarios. So Texas maybe could say, fine, we amend our law tomorrow and add a kidney provision and a blood transfusion provision. Are you happy now? So, So it's complicated in various ways. I understand that, but you didn't even, you know, truthfully, make the equality argument the way an originalist would want you to make it, which, to repeat doesn't mean that you never stray beyond the text. You, you, we, we couldn't decide anything that way, but the, you at least start there, connect some dots, end there, um, sing the song of the Constitution and not the song of your predecessors in that exalted high spot at one first street. Just sing the song of Harry Blackman or of David Souter, Anthony Kennedy, Senator and, and I, I really had a lot of personal respect and effect, have a lot of personal respect and affection for, for all of those folks, but that's not originalism. That's not the story of the Constitution. You swore an oath of office to the Constitution, and the Constitution says that it, and not Casey and not Roe, is the supreme law of the land.
0: So when they wind up their analysis before moving on to their criticism of uh, Glucksberg and so forth, they, uh, they say the majority would allow states to ban abortion from conception onward because it does not think forced childbirth at all implicates a woman's rights to equality and freedom. Today's court, that is, does not think that there is anything of constitutional significance attached to a woman's control of her body and the path of her life.
1: Yeah, and I I, I agree with uh, much of that, and that's why I don't love uh, you know everything in the Dobbs majority opinion. But your job as a dissent is not just to have one sentence about this, but to actually explain the whole thing. And if you're saying the fundamental problem is from conception onward, oh, I begged you to consider you know given that you were going to lose, the only question is whether you're going to lose big or lose small. To lose small by basically saying. Mississippi is okay because it's not from conception forward. It's 15 weeks. We're only talking about 4% of abortions and people can travel and all the rest and try to create a damage control alternative narrative where you actually reach out to Roberts and then put pressure on Kavanaugh to join your more moderate coalition. But you didn't do that, and now you're getting nothing. And I was saying, hmm, maybe you should have tried to say, here's, here's an idea, okay, Women's equality, here's where it is in the Constitution, first sentence of the 14th Amendment, and the Equal Protection Clause, and the 19th Amendment, and 13th Amendment uh, considerations uh, as well. Here's what they add up to. There's nothing p- exactly like abortion. We admit that. But this is such an imposition on women and only women, and the must go, because we have to analyze this through the lens of gedulding, I through the lens of sex discrimination, it must be justified by an exceedingly persuasive justification. And here's at a minimum what women's equality and liberty, their privileges and immunities means. They have to have enough time to make a choice. And whether that was true in 1868, that is supported by modern consensus today, because there are only seven states that actually are eight states that give you less than fifteen weeks. Mississippi is actually, you know, in the mainstream, so we're going to uphold it. That's enough time. But in effect, they're saying, oh, maybe not so much Texas or Oklahoma. So they could have done that sort of analysis. It would have been faithful to Glucksburg, which is the case, a precedent. They would have done accounting analysis, and they would have actually had to admit, unfortunately, if you're very full-throatedly pro-choice, that Mississippi is not an outlier But you're doing damage control, 15 weeks, plus travel, plus the possibility of being funded by charities and and others, plus the idea that no law that's an old law should ever be allowed to spring back into life because women never even were allowed to vote on laws before the 19th Amendment. And that actually is hugely relevant in Wisconsin, for example, today. That debate, you know, about a pre-19th Amendment law springing back into existence. Audience members... Go back, listen to the Dobbs deal episode, if you haven't before, where you actually well, I laid out a vision of an alternative strategy for the liberals.
0: Okay, so I think that uh, we need to, to elaborate a little bit more on the Glucksberg case so that people understand it, because it seems to me that this case is elevating the Glucksberg case in a way to a position of more centrality than it had before. And before you answer that, let me just read you this sentence from the first, which leads off you know, part B of the dissent. We just finished part A. And where they say the majority makes this change uh, in women's rights, that is, based on a single question. Did the reproductive right recognized in Rowan Casey exist in, quote, 1868, comma, the year when the 14th amendment was ratified unquote so and then they say the majority says and with this much we agree that the answer to this question is no in 1868 there was no nationwide right to end a pregnancy and no no thought that the 14th amendment provided one okay so the i read that as saying they're that they're making a claim that the analysis by the majority ends when you discuss with 1868. Right. Is that what Glucksberg says?
1: So in general, this is true of all Supreme Court opinions. Dissents are not always the most reliable account of what the majority actually says, because sometimes they exaggerate what the majority has said. Just like if I want to know what the statute means, I'm especially interested in what the sponsors of the statute, say, not the opponents. If I care about what the Constitution is all about, I'm going to pay particular attention to the Federalists rather than what the Anti-Federalists are actually saying um, about the, the opponents. So I've already told the audience that the majority opinion Dobbs explicitly talks explicitly about Griswold as involving an outlier statute that's an outlier statute Circuit, 1965. It cites a brief from 1965 talking about that. And, and I mentioned that, of course, in the in previous episodes and episodes before that. Glucksburg is not merely about 1868. I discussed Glucksburg in some detail in the chapter that I wrote about unenumerated rights. We put it up before. It appeared in the Yale Law Journal in a, sh- a chapter on unenumerated rights, chapter three of my book, America's unwritten constitution. So here's what I write in that book and in that chapter. After setting forth the facts of the case, this was about assisted suicide, a claim of a right of assisted suicide, a right to die, so to speak, uh, the Glucksberg Court launched its analysis as follows. We begin, as we do in all due process cases, by examining our nation's history, legal traditions, and practices. In almost every state, Indeed, in almost every Western democracy, it is a crime to assist suicide. That's the present moment, you see. The state's assisted suicide bans are not innovation, so they're starting with the present and then going backwards. Rather, they are longstanding expressions of the state's commitment to the protection and preservation of all human life. Indeed, and then they, they go on. So, so they actually started with a present-day counting. I, I'm telling you, it's very rhetorically and emotionally convenient to think that the the only problem is just that women weren't around to defend the vision that you think is right in 1868 because they weren't allowed to vote or in 1791. No, my friends on the left, the problem is that we are losing today among a lot of Americans in a lot of states where, in case you missed it, women vote. And women often vote more pro Life anti-choice, and if you don't diagnose the situation correctly, you're you know going to have um, a, a wrong prescription. I don't read Dobbs, which invokes Glucksberg and mentions prominently the, the word outlier, as does the set of opinions in the Bruin case which emphasizes, I think, at pages four to five of the majority opinion, that 43 states, maybe 44, allow you to carry guns in in various ways more robustly than, than did New York. New York was the outlier, and Kavanaugh, in his separate opinion, highlighted that using the word outlier. So these opinions are not just about 1868. They're about the present moment, and Glucksberg is too. I just read you, the verb is... Is like you know what was that famous Clinton
0: quote? It depends on what the um, meaning of the word "is" is. That was that was um, Clinton. Yes.
1: Yes, and the, the passage in Glucksburg, um Just to repeat, in almost every state, it is a crime to assist a suicide. Okay, they're not talking about 1868. They're not talking about 1791. They're talking about. The moment of decision. And that was a case from 1997. And there they're talking about what the state practice is in
0: 1997. It's important then that they're relying on Glucksburg in the sense that it does not restrict the analysis to 1868 or 1791. And so the, because a lot of the rhetoric out there in the press has been that, again, this fossilization of American law. Um, Which is
1: which is why, my friends, you know, we're trying to actually, Andy slows me down, but we're trying to offer a very serious and careful account. If we've mischaracterized Glucksberg, uh, we'd love to hear from you, fellow podcasters or, or, or just audience members, um, citizens or experts out there. But I think Glucksburg says what I just Red, and the majority does talk about state practice today. The fundamental problem, as I've mentioned, you know, umpteen times, is Roe versus Wade invalidated the extant laws of either 49 or 50 states. Okay? It's not, the problem with Roe wasn't that it didn't have enough support from 1868, it's that it didn't have enough support from 1973, and the problem with the dissent is it doesn't have enough support in 2022, but it would like you to ignore that. It sort of glosses over that.
0: And, uh, of course, the, uh, the beauty of your equality argument, if you were able to carry the day with it, is that that's not a timed argument because equality is an enumerated right within the Constitution, or at least enumerated value within the Constitution, as opposed it to... It is. Now,
1: it, it, even that, it can be a little complicated mm-hmm. because I might actually be interested in what people think in the here and now about whether a certain law is or isn't equal. For example, sex segregation of bathrooms or of sports teams, it's treating males and females differently, but do they actually? but is it actually unequal? Well, that might depend on what males and females actually think about the thing, whether they actually think it's demeaning them or exalting the other folks. And that might change over time. Andy knows that I've told him offline, just jokingly, that you know, and it only took me 25 years to figure that out. this out, that um, when I thought my spouse and I were just having a conversation and she thought it was an argument, Oh, if she thinks this an argument, it's an argument. If either side thinks this is an argument, oh, <laughs> it's an argument. That that's a pro tip for those of you out there. It, it took me a long time to figure this out. Joking aside, if either side of a certain legal distinction, you know, says this is not really fair to us, this is unequal, that might be very relevant analysis, uh, very relevant excuse me, information, um, evidence for doing an equality analysis that's sensitive to. Social meaning and above and beyond just physical facts of of the real world.
0: Yeah, I think you, you see that actually quite vividly in the uh, the current controversy regarding the swimming team at Penn and with uh, the, uh, the the swimmer Leah Thomas, um, because people the on the team themselves on the Penn team have spoken up spoken about how. They're either they're happy or they're not happy about it. mostly not happy, I think, about the situation. And that seems to many readers to be relevant.
1: Many many women athletes prefer actually having sex segregation in athletics, male and female tennis teams. Women's softball versus men's hardball, women's gymnastics, which is different from men's gymnastics in that one has an even parallel bars, one has an uneven parallel bars, rings versus balance beam, and so on. So, yes, many women themselves were celebrating, I think, 50 years of Title IX. I'm, I'm not a sports person, particularly a college sports person, Andy knows. But we don't actually have unisex in all sports programs. We have sex distinctions, laws, but they may not be violations of the equality idea, if they truly are equal, and one way of asking. So they have to be equal in, in some sense. That's in the Constitution. But one way of thinking about equality is actually looking to see if people on each side of the legal distinction actually feel uh, properly treated. And the final complexity is it won't be 100% and within any group you know, necessarily. Abortion is complicated because it's not just that 90% of women are pro-choice and 10% are anti-choice, it's actually much more complicated than that. There may be more pro-life anti-choice women than there are men.
0: I'm not sure um, that that's to even the, even the right question. As to, but, but, uh, but anyway, I mean, most of the polls, I think, are around two-thirds of women are pro-choice, which is... Seems, you know, well it, again, low. and it
1: depends but, on how you yeah, you ask the yeah, question, our course. friend Ed Whalen, who's been on the podcast, just sent us some poll data that looked very different than the ones that national liberal media are reporting so um, it 's complicated
0: fair enough okay, so you know I, I think some people in the past tend to think tended to think of Roe um, maybe uh, this might not be a fair comparison, but but maybe a little bit like. Bush versus Gore in the sense that it, uh, it had an important result, but maybe not an important argument. You know, in other words, it didn't maybe you know, set big precedents in constitutional law. That may be incorrect. But at any rate, if we look at Dobbs, we know it has an important policy outcome in the sense that abortion rights that were encoded are now up for grabs um, at the state level would you say it had an important legal result?
1: Yes, and I think here we close, and because this is going to be now a bridge to future episodes. What has just happened is not just a revolution uh, in abortion law. It's also, as you've heard, audience members, a revolution in how we think about unenumerated rights. It's also the part of a larger methodological revolution away from precedent focused analysis or just interest balancing toward originalism um, and their various flavors of originalism. And we haven't talked in great detail about some of the other cases. We've just alluded to the, the gun case, but we need to take it very seriously. It's that it's a very ambitious self-styled originalist opinion by an ambitious self-styled and originalist originalist Clarence Thomas. So it's a jurisprudential revolution. It's taking a case that many thought was canonical Roe, canonical like Brown, uh, in the highest circle of Dante's paradise and actually relegating it to the lowest circle of Dante's Inferno. It's now becoming uh, become the new Dred Scott, the new Lochner. This is going to have implications for how we think about what constitutional law is. If, if you go from the idea that Roe is the classic exemplar, the paradigm of what the Supreme Court, you know, does at its best, to now, you see, the, the court is saying, no, this is what we did at our worst. This was an egregious error. And we don't just overrule Roe, we overrule Casey, which was all about how to think about precedent. Wow, it's not just about abortion. Just to repeat, it's about substantive due process and unenumerated rights and originalism and the status of precedent, And what you think, you know, the the fundamental role of the court is and what are the central cases in constitutional law, the, the easy cases in the canon versus the obviously wrongly decided cases. So this is huge, way beyond, which I don't want to minimize, the actual impact on the lives of Millions, tens of millions of my fellow citizens, and Andy, we just keep reminding our audience. I personally am pro-choice and will vote pro-choice, and I want those of you who happen to share my view to to vote as well. I want everyone to vote. Actually, I'm, I'm a believer in that. But just as you know, we vote, and if we lose, then as long as it was fair and square, we accept the result, and then we vote again view of constitutional law is there are rules of interpretation. I play by those rules. They don't always favor my policy outcome. And when they do, great. And if not, then, you know, we live to fight another day. And the final point on, on all this is we're not just in the future episodes going to talk about Bruin and some of the other originalist cases. We're going to talk about how originalism might just save the day in the ISL case, which is huge going forward. But for it to save the day, the folks on the liberal side who just said precedent, 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 well, they'll, that would be good enough to win in ISL. I think the precedents support um, the anti-ISL position, but it will be oh so much stronger if in addition to saying precedent, 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 they can say text, 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 history, 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 structure, 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 originalism, originalism, originalism.
0: And precedent. <laughs> and precedent. Okay, so we'll be back next week, and we'll—we promise we'll talk about Bruin and more,
1: and Toto too. <laughs>